morning, church. Trust you can hear me this morning. Good to go. Forgive me, my sort of church tradition is uh, where to uh, preach in a full suit. So I feel like I'm not prepared properly. I don't have my time. Um, but by the grace of God, I think in that tradition, it was just in getting the preacher accustomed to reverence and taking seriously the opportunity to preach God's word. <clears throat> My name is Morandini, as I mentioned, um, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, as we get into, thank you God for preaching uh, the, 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 the scriptures this morning, it's a long text, and I know it's a long text, um, but we won't be going verse by verse. I'm just going to be sort of classifying different aspects of, of the, the teaching text for this morning and we're going to expound it from there. So as we look at the a quick recap of a quick, a quick recap of what the series we're currently looking at is. So this picture I'm going to show you guys a bit later, but we can just go back to sort of the just the Acts 2 um, sort of screen. Uh, for, for, for what we're looking at. So Acts chapter 2 is what we've been looking at as a church. A couple of weeks ago, Lissoba started us by looking at the anticipation of the Spirit of God coming before us. Then last week, Reno looked at the first couple of verses where we looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit had been anticipated for a very long time. So this week, we're looking at the fact that Peter's continuing to respond to, 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 to help explain what exactly is the Spirit of God and, and what is this overflow um, and the practical implications of the Spirit of God. Before we get into that, I want to I take us back to just before Jesus ascended and then departed the earth and left the disciples. So we're going to look at the, the, the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28 and at the end of Luke 24. It's, it's, it's going to give us additional background and an additional reminder of what Jesus actually instructed and commanded to his disciples, which is exactly what Peter is actually doing in Acts chapter 2 as we start. So Matthew 28, this is what we know as the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the instruction here from Jesus is, make disciples, baptize, and teach them to obey what I commanded you. Right. So this is what he leaves the disciples with. Then we see in Luke chapter 24, he continues then. Again, it's different accounts of what he said, multiple renditions of what Jesus said to his disciples. But in Luke 24, verses 46 to 49, he says, Then it was written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Your witnesses of these things, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been filled with the power from on high. So on the one side, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I taught you. Right? Then in Luke 24, we see that what will follow is preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. We find ourselves in Acts 2. First thing that Peter is doing is actually preaching, and as we'll see in our text, about who Jesus was, encouraging them to repent and be baptized, and then they're going to walk a journey of discipleship. So already in Acts 2, we're seeing the obedience of the disciples, of the apostles, 
following the last words of Jesus Christ. This is the context, and I'm sharing this because as we go through this message, you'll see sort of this consistent theme of an overflow of the words of Jesus into the lives of the disciples and the text that we find ourselves in. I want to ask a question. I actually, I did want to ask a question. I see that the space is a little bit small for me, so I'm going to put my Bible here. Um, I was going to say, who has ever received an invitation? But I don't want to polarize and make people feel bad, because if you didn't receive an invitation and you don't put up your hand and you're the only one, that's a little bit awkward, right? So I want to go on the assumption that most of us have received an invitation in one form or another. Right, so whether it's even coming to church, something as, 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 as informal, one might say, as coming to church, there was an invite. Some more formal context of invitations, we've got weddings, we've got graduations, uh, in, in the world of 2021 in COVID, you've got webinars, yeah. Zoom webinars, it's the worst sometimes, but it's an invite, right? But well, two examples, you have two pictures, um, because they're two different types of invitations. On the right here, you'll see an open-ended invitation that's an invite to everyone. This was just like a ministry invitation. Uh, as you can see, ministry among intercultural groups. Uh, there's a part there where it says, all are invited. Right? That's the one type of invite. But it's open to everyone. You, you pass it on, you forward it, there's no restrictions. Right? Then on the other side, this is Zita and I's uh, traditional wedding celebration invitation, December 19th of 2020. We're coming on a year by the grace of God. Oh. Excited, right? Love it. Excited. I'm excited. Um, and so this was an invitation that we sent to friends and family, so close friends and family, and, and, and uh, loved ones. It wasn't open to everyone. We sent it to specific individuals. In fact, there was an additional layer where we were going to have sort of the contemporary, what's commonly known as the white wedding celebration, where they charged us per head. You know, so it's like you, you're calculating the numbers, like, no, no, we can only have X amount of people. And so you write their names and you send it out. Specific, closed, personalized. Now, we've sort of deviated. In, in African, sort of South African black wedding tradition, we've sort of deviated from what custom and culture typically dictates. Because back in the day, there's no such thing as a closed-off wedding. <laughs> uh, your wedding is our wedding, our wedding is your wedding. Your, your, your groom and bride is our groom and bride. You know? And in fact, Zita and I yesterday were at a wedding. One of my uncles was getting married, and typical classic, like it's Shewa Township in Polokwani, like they block off the streets, so the people are like, if you're going to block off the streets, I'm going to park my car and come inside in. You know, so like, it's, it's, it's open invitation, right? Unfortunately, the challenge is, it comes with complications because financially it's a bit difficult to plan, and then you get some unsavory characters whom you otherwise wouldn't want, right? So you always have this like random uncle or this random old man who's there for two things. Food. Free food and prime alcohol. So, like, like, ultimately, in the community, like, they go for those two things. And the wealthier the family in the neighborhood, oh, you're gonna taste meat you've never had before. You're gonna, you're gonna drink alcohol you've never had before. Now, it comes to this pros and its cons because, like, yesterday, my grandmother was frustrated because there was this random man in the, in the community, no one knew who he was. He, 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 he stacked his plate. So black funerals and black weddings, like people will go there and they'll just like stack their plate with food. 
right? Most religions you can finish. He'll maybe eat about that much and then he'll just discard it. Sadly, right? But then the second side of it, now he's drinking and he's drunk and he's causing chaos and he's causing problems. So that's the downside of it. But the beautiful side of this open-ended, uh, sort of non-closed invitation is anyone can celebrate. You see kids in the neighborhood coming up and celebrating and seeing sort of the bridal party and, and, and them singing and dancing. This morning, we're going to be talking about what we call the gospel invitation. See where I'm going? It too is not closed. By the grace of God, this morning we're going to be looking at the gospel presentation, looking at the life of Jesus, and the fact that it's open for all. God loves us. He loves His creation, and He wants to have a relationship with every single one of His creation. It's an open-ended invitation. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So, so, so our message this morning um, is titled, It's All About Jesus. Beautiful song that we sang, we, we sang in our set list. Or we're going to sing in our set list. It's all about Jesus. Two points that we're going to look at. Two simple points. First one, we're going to look at the gospel invitation. Second one, we're going to look at the response. The question I'm here to ask as church is, what is your response to the gospel invitation. What is your response to the gospel invitation? It's not we're told or we're expected to do this and that. No, no, no. We need to have moments on a regular basis where we're asking, how do we respond when we've received the gospel? We've been told the gospel and we understand the implications of the gospel in our lives. So this morning we're going to be looking at the text and we're going to see Peter present the gospel, and then we're going to see the people in the crowd responding to the gospel. Let me pray for us this morning, and we'll continue. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this day. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the selfless sacrifice where Jesus died on the cross for us that we may have access to Jesus. We may have access to you through Jesus. So I pray this morning, Lord God, that you may speak to us, speak to each one of us. May we hear what you have to say to us. The same way the people in the crowd were convicted once they heard the gospel and said, what do we do now? May your spirit convict us this morning that we may ask you what we are to do now, what we are to do today. Or open up our hearts, Lord, open up our minds. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, 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 so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt something pretty ambitious. Um, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. We're going to look at the theological implications of the different stages of Jesus' life as we dive deeper into an understanding of the gospel. Gospel, it, it pretty much just means good news, right? So there's nothing significant in this, the, 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 the expression of the term gospel. Jesus himself said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, 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 to preach and to deliver good news. That's the gospel. So it's the good news specifically about Jesus Christ. 
The cross that fell earlier, we had to make sure theologically we stood it up, you know, so one minute it was down, next minute you see the cross is here, eh? <laughs> So, bear with me, church. I'm going to cover a lot of content in a short amount of time, but I feel this is the right message to actually dive a little bit deeper theologically around the different stages of Jesus' life. So I'm going to give you a lot of content, then we're going to discuss for a little bit the response that we should have. So buckle up your seats, regardless of the type of car you have, think, imagine buckle up your seat, or aeroplane, or bus, get ready, we're moving, right? Okay, so at, at Head Fellowship City, we, we talk about the fact that we are a... Uh, we talk about the fact that we are a gospel-centered, disciple-making, transcultural church, right? When we talk about gospel-centered, what do we say? A life centered and saturated by the perfect birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and ultimate return of Christ. Those are the stages of Jesus' life. We're going to be looking at it. We're going to see actually do come out of the text this morning, right? So... In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see then that Peter starts to spend a bunch of verses talking about Jesus and the different stages of the life of Jesus. Right? So, so he starts off then in verse 22. My fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to by miracles, wonders, and signs. I'm going to start by talking about this first part of it that says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man. This is where we see the birth of Christ. He was a man, he was a human, he was once a baby. Right? So in Matthew 1, 18 and 20, we see the angels speak to Joseph and to Mary, and, and the angel says to them, that which is conceived is conceived by the Spirit of God. So theologically, we know that in the birth of Jesus, what's significant is he was fully God and fully human. It's the first theological teaching that we, we start with in the birth of Jesus. The deity speaks to the, the, the godness of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. All these become significant theologically when we come to this culminating point of the death of Christ and what that means theologically. But, but again, bear with me. So, the first part of it is the birth of Jesus. Fully God, fully human, born of the Holy Spirit, and a virgin Mary. Right? Cool. So then, Peter continues. He was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as, as you yourselves. And so now, we look at the life of Jesus. So, 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 so in the scriptures here, Peter says, accredited by God, where we see that through the, 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 the miraculous powers, the miraculous uh, actions and signs and wonders that Jesus committed, it confirmed that he was the Son of God. Right? So that's one part of the life of Jesus. So throughout, we see in the scriptures that they are amazed at what he does and at what he says. So in his life, we see there's something bestowed upon Jesus that is, that is new, that is unfamiliar. There's a godness in a human that they've never seen before. But, but secondly, the other part that I want to note around the significance of the life of Jesus that he lived on this earth is he lived a sinless life. 
Hebrews 4 verse 15, Hebrews 7 26 speaks about the fact that we have a high priest who was without sin. Now this becomes significant again because when we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, again, we're going pretty deep here. But in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was what they called the Day of Atonement. Once a year, they called it in, in, in Hebrew Yom Kippur. The one day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, what the temple looked like back in the day, there was the outer courts, there was the inner courts, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the presence of God was said to be. You know when Jesus died on the cross and it says, the veil was torn in two? There was a veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. It symbolized separation between God and His people. Because of sin. Right? So once a year, this day of atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, purify himself. So again, I just it's, it's a massive disclaimer I need to mention. There's a lot that I'm just giving like a high-level overview and summary, right? But the, the, the high priest would have to purify himself, special day, holy moment. In fact, it said that um, the high priest would there'd be a, a rope around his, his, his leg. Because if he was there, he was impure, he would be struck dead. And remember, no one can enter the Holy of Holies, so they would pull him out in a row. Like the Holy of Holies was no joke. So once a year, the high priest would go in, on behalf of all the people of God, would offer up a sacrifice. Two goats would be given, one would be slaughtered, the blood would symbolize an acceptable sacrifice, because they would sacrifice a blemish-free Right, so the words were, it must be an animal without blemish. This is where we see the significance of the sinlessness of Jesus is for God in the Old Testament sacrificial system to accept a sacrifice, the animal had to be without blemish. Symbolically what that meant was the sins of the people were transferred to the animal. It was slaughtered. The, the blood symbolically that meant Jesus Christ or God accepted that sacrifice. Again, so, so high level. So Jesus Christ then is seen as one who lived a sinless life. So if Jesus Christ had any sin in him, he wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice. Because according to the Old Testament instructions by God himself, it had to be without blemish. Do you see the significance of different stages of Jesus' life theologically? Okay, you'll see it as we keep going along. So I want to read 2 Corinthians 5.21. This, this is a passage where Paul speaks explicitly about the sinlessness of Jesus and what that means theologically, right? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So it says, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin... God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologically, the significance of the work of Jesus. We're talking the gospel this morning, right? So we're looking at the life of Jesus and the significance of the life of Jesus. So it says, God took him, Jesus, who was without sin, he made him sin. So theologically, he took our sin upon himself. 
that sin was nailed, when he was nailed on the cross, we need to understand, theologically what that meant is, our sins were nailed on that cross. And at his death then, notice what it says, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Mm, this is the gospel. We're understanding the role we play within the context of Jesus' life. Okay, so we're still on the life of Jesus, the, sinless, the sinlessness of Jesus. Right, and he was an acceptable sacrifice. Then we keep moving. You'll then notice in, so again, we're looking at the words of Peter. He's speaking in re response to the people. The Spirit of God has come. Joel promised the Spirit. Listen now, he talks about Jesus. So then he goes on in verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I just mentioned just now. God took him who was no sin, right? Who had no sin and made him sin. So the, the folks in this congregation were convicted because they recognized it was due to their sin. And for some of them, they're proactive sending Jesus to the cross. When Pilate said, who do you want? Jesus or this criminal? He said, Jesus crucify him. So some of them actively were involved in the direct killing. But in case we think we're absolved, we need to recognize that we also played apart theologically. So now we start to speak about his death. So verses 24, we're not going to read them all, all the way through to about verse 31. Peter now gets into different stages talking about the death of Christ. He brings in David, who was an anointed king, who was a prophet. The lineage of the Messiah was going to go through David. He goes on to emphasize in verse 26, he says, David died. David was a mere human, right? David died. He references that we know his tomb. See that cemetery? You can find David there. His body's there. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's human. In contrast to Jesus Christ. You see what, what Peter is doing here? Again, he's expounding the gospel, giving references that they're familiar with. So now I'm going to take a little moment to just look at... Your time is running. It's okay. Look at... The death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So, ultimately, the culminating point is the cross, right? I wanted the cross to be up close there, but I, I encourage you to look at the cross, right? We talk about a gospel invitation. If we ever have a doubt that there's a gospel invitation to, to God's people, to God's creation, let's have a look at the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's an invitation. Whosoever believes in him. Ultimately, death on the cross. Okay, so the death of Jesus and the theological significance. Um, in Romans 3.25 it speaks about the fact that Jesus Christ was given as an atoning sacrifice. Another word that's used in other versions is the pro propitiation. Hey, this word, baby. The propitiation of our sins. The English is tough. Hebrew is just as tough as Greek. So the Greek is hilasterion. Propitiation, one English word, hilasterion, which basically means, again, it's going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which says we were separated by sin from God. Right? Jesus was necessary 
to allow us to have access back to God again. Now, Jesus, God then, required a satisfactory sacrifice. So we talk about Jesus being the substitutionary atonement. I'm giving you a lot of theological terms, but again, it helps us go a little bit deeper. What that means is you have, you have God on one side, you have me on the other side, you have a relevant, necessary, acceptable sacrifice that's required to replace me in the court of law because we've done wrong before the eyes of God. We are now incapable of being in access with God because of our sin. Right? So the first starting point of the gospel is the fact that without God, without Christ, we can't have access to God. We, we talk about the depravity of humanity. Right? We talk about the fact that we actually need a savior. So unless we're able to, to confess and say, I am flawed, Lord, I have sinned, I need you to help me, we won't actually realize the need for a Savior. So theologically, again, there's God, there's us, there's separation. God will only accept an acceptable sacrifice. Use the, the reference of a, um, an animal or sacrifice without blemish. Now, Jesus then, in his death, served as Remember, I said the Day of Atonement was a once-a-year event. So every single year, the people of God had to go back, offer sacrifices, be forgiven every single year. Jesus is a once-for-all sacrifice. So in uh, Romans 3.25, when it says he was the propitiation, he was an atoning sacrifice that was once-for-all. He, was, he lived a sinless life, so he was acceptable before God. Now let's take it back to his birth. He was fully God and fully human. Therefore, he could represent us before God. 1 John, 1, 1 John 2 verse 1 says, Jesus Christ is our advocate and he intercedes on our behalf. So to understand the role of Jesus, I'm going to read Colossians 1. Verses 19 to 23, again, to further emphasize the significance of the death of Jesus. So first, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19, it reads as follows. For God was pleased to have all Jesus' fullness, or his fullness, Jesus, dwell, or God's fullness, dwell in Jesus. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. Do you see the language used in scripture, church? To clearly describe our state before Christ and our state after Christ. Our state before the cross and our state after the cross. This is the gospel message, right? We were once not reconciled, alienated, language that is used here, and now we're reconciled through the death of Christ. Okay, um, I'm going to speed through the rest of them, but again, I just want to make sure that today we're able 
to have a full appreciation of, appreciation of the, the, the significance of the different stages of Jesus' life. So we look at his birth, we look at his life, we look at his death, quickly look at his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 onwards, Paul says, without Jesus being resurrected, what we believe is futile. Because then he was just another human. Right? In Romans 6, he goes on to say, we have been buried with him in our death, and now we are raised with him. Excuse me, in his resurrection, and in our ultimate resurrection. Symbolically, it, it, it reminds us theologically that we serve a living God. In his conquering of death, again, he died, but then three days he stayed, he rose on the third day. Symbolically, he defeated death. And scripture says, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life. So sin equals death. Jesus equals life. He had to rise. Again, it showed, the scripture says, the power of God was seen through the Holy Spirit as he raised Christ from the dead. The significance of the resurrection should never be lost on us. It can just be another thing. Okay, so that's the resurrection. Lastly, or second to last, the ascension. So in verse 33, so we go on again, as we look at the passage in, 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 in Acts 2, we look at now Peter talking to these folks. Verse 33 says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Goes on to speak about David, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Theologically, not only do we serve a living God, we serve a living God with authority. Verse 33 says he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's a position of authority. And ultimately, as we look at the return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about his ultimate return. Right? We look at um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says, when he comes down, he'll come down with his angels. And ultimately, he's going to be here to judge the living and the dead. The significance of his ascension is that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The significance of his return is that he will return, confirming his power and authority. Okay, church, you've made it. You can give yourself a round of applause. You've made it through. The gospel predicts. And can you believe? Like it's, that's been like how, how long? It's been 30 minutes. And that's part one. That's the first point of the message. It's a bit rough. But it's okay. Church, the second part of this message is all about responding to the gospel invitation. By the grace of God, we have been able to look at what the gospel looks like in a little bit more depth. Look at the significance theologically of the different stages of Christ's life. Now, we ask the question, how do we respond? What's our response? Church, that's all I want to leave us with this morning. I ask myself that question. God asked me that question. What is your response? Not just for this message, but on a regular basis as I spend time with God. I'm like, Lord, help me respond in an appropriate manner, in a God-glorifying manner to the message of the gospel. 
Have a look at verse 37. So the people of God, I'd like to think Peter was a dynamic, powerful preacher. Right? But it had nothing to do with Peter. It has nothing to do with me this morning. It's the message. It's Jesus. And have a look at their response in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart. They asked the question, what shall we do? How are we to respond? Verse 38, Peter gives the instruction. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call you to be. I just want to spend a moment just looking at what repentance means. Um, Oxford Dictionary defines to repent as to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or one's sin. I'll read that again. Oxford defines repentance as to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. Repentance, biblically speaking, goes a little bit deeper. It takes it a step further. The Greek word is metanoeo, metanoeo, and metanoeo. We say these things. One, to sound a little bit smart. But two, honestly, so that you can actually look them up. <laughs> so we share these so that you can understand that the words used in Scripture, Bible was written in Hebrew, it was written in um, Greek. There's a third language, Aramaic, right? I don't remember, there's a third language in the middle there. Um, on some of those uh, uh, books of scripture. So scripture adds an additional component. So the, the Greek word for repentance is think differently, reconsider to the point where you change your place or your condition. Right? The word, the word metanoia comes from meta, which is to change a place or condition. What this means is, in one moment, I am here. I'm, I'm, I'm even standing on the piano. If this was the church's piano, I'd stand on it. But it's not ours. So I'm in one place in one moment. And in repentance, I ensure that I move to a different place. You see what they're saying there? In thought, it's the same thing. I'm thinking in my headspace is here. But in repentance, I move my headspace to a different place. I was going to walk you through GPSs and give that as an illustration, but we don't need to because the gist of a church is when we talk about repentance, it's to be in one place, to have one thought. You hear the gospel. You hear about the transformative work that Jesus did. You realize your sad, sorry state you realize how much you need God. You need to move from here. I can't stay here. That's repentance. And for me to move from here to here, I can't do it in my own strength. I need God. That's repentance, church. Jesus preached repentance from the moment he started his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He then instructed, the reason I shared Matthew 28 and Luke 24 is Jesus said, upon my resurrection, 
There will be the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins. So what we're talking about this morning, church, an appropriate response to Jesus and the life of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus is I need to change drastically so. And that's not to say you live a perfect life, by the way. You know, we dispel that myth. No. As we see with many of the disciples who walk with Jesus every day, it's just making sure that, Lord, I was headed in one direction and I realized I need to move in this direction. And though I may stumble from time to time, though I may get it wrong from time to time, I'm no longer headed in that direction. I'm headed in this direction. And by the way, this direction, I'm following you. I'm following the cross. Church, let me close for us. Because that's the gist of what we're talking about this morning. There's a gospel invitation, church. Some describe it as the greatest story ever told. That's what we believe as a church. What we just declared this morning. My question to us, myself included, right? For those who don't have a relationship with Jesus and who have, met, who have never had this come to Jesus moment, this moment of, of life transforming repentance and change, the first response is that which was mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized. That's the starting moment. Right? So, so there's an invitation to this group. Then there's an invitation to this other group. I've repented, I've turned around and I'm going in this direction. The question still stands. What is your response? There are three scriptures I was going to read. Colossians 1.10, Philippians 1.27, Ephesians 4.1. All they say is church, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the call. Live a life worthy of Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this day and we thank you for the privilege of church to be in this space where we can read your word, Lord, and be convicted yet encouraged, Father. There's an invitation that you've put in place, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you may challenge each one of us to reflect on our response to that invitation. Bless your people this morning, Father. Be with them. Be with us. And be with us on a daily basis, Lord, as we, as we navigate, as we figure this out. By the guidance of your Spirit, with the support of one another as a people of God, in the reading of your word. We love you and we praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.